This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock. And over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. So this morning we do start a new sermon series called Welcome to the Story. And I want to introduce the sermon series. Uh, I'm going to ask three questions in the sermon this morning. And the first two really are introducing the series. And the third question is really the topic for today. Okay. So as I was thinking about story and the power of story, uh, I, was, I thought about an event that happened a year ago in my house. I had one of those moments where I was uh, unfortunately a little overzealous during story time with my girls. And rather than simply doing what was normal, which was sitting down and uh, reading a story. That's pretty simple. I can read. And as parents, we know we can be tired. We can kind of check out when we're reading the story and they don't know. It's amazing. And you just read the words and they listen and they have a great time. But I came in all excited and I made up a story. I made it up and they loved it. And it was great. And they went to sleep and they stayed in bed, which doesn't happen most of the time. And the next night I come in exhausted and Livy, my oldest daughter says, daddy, can you tell us another story from your head? And I was like, "Uh, mm -mm. nope, I can't do that. Uh, And she said, why? And I said, because it takes a lot of energy. And she said, well, you did it last night. And that's when it hit me. That was a parenting fail. (laughs) So she asks me, almost every night. And it was about a year ago because it was last summer. And she's got about like a 20% rate on return when she asks and I actually do it. But she's faithful. And, uh, and I know some of you have babysat my children and put them to bed. And you know I'm telling the truth right now. Every night she asks whoever puts them to bed, can you tell me a story from your head? But you also know that she says this. What does she say? I'm looking at some of you. She says, make sure you put a scary part in it. (laughs) And what she's asking for is a crucial element to any good story, right? She understands a good story has a certain character to it. It has a certain flow to it. And we all know that we inherently love stories. We're drawn into them, 
aren't we? There's a reason why we love reading stories. We love hearing them. We love podcasts that tell them. We love movies and music and all types of ways that we receive stories. And we know that stories draw us in. Stories draw us in and they actually begin to change us. They, they take us to places that we wouldn't be able to go on our own. They give us spectacles by which to view reality. It's like glasses. And we know stories are integral to our lives. We tell them, we love to listen to them. We understand our place in the world by them. And so we would then expect then that the Bible, the word of God, would be understood as a story. Not just a story to be told, but a story to be lived a story to be invited into, a story to participate in, a story that would situate us and give us purpose and meaning and that would not leave us unchanged. That's what we want from good stories and that's what Livy wants when she asks for a story from my head every night. So first, I wanna ask this question. Uh, how do stories work, right? We know that they're important, but How do they work? And I can't go into a bunch of detail, but it's important if we're gonna say welcome to the story, we'd have some common understanding of what I mean when I say that, all right? So first, how do stories work? Well, every good story has at least four fundamental elements to it, okay? So first, there's a prologue, right? There's an introduction to any story. And in an introduction, you're introduced to the principal characters and the starting relationships. And that Introduction sets the stage for the unfolding drama and the context that that story will take place in. And then we know every story from that introduction at some speed moves to some conflict. And this is what Livy is asking for when she says, make it scary. She wants there to be some conflict to arise where the characters have to face a challenge. And this conflict forms that dramatic problem of the story that lasts much of the story. And then there's a resolution Right? That's when the conflict is resolved or dealt with in some fashion. Then after the resolution, there's a conclusion. And this is a summing up of the entire story. It's, a, it, it's summing up for the reader or the listener or the viewer all of the parts in the story. And what's important to realize is that in this summation, another thing that it does is it tells us how the original relationships before the problem are modified and changed in the resolution. Right? Everyone is changed in a story. Right? You think of our favorite stories, whatever epic tales we love, whether it's uh, modern day Harry Potter, right? that's a big one, uh, or uh, before that, what still is popular, Lord of the Rings, these epic tales, and how the characters, as they overcome these challenges, everything changes. And so there are more than four types of stories, but every story has these four basic elements. And we know that the better that the tension is, the better the tension is managed between all of these elements, the better the story is. And we also know that good stories do something to us, don't they? I mean, I I went with Aaron uh, recently to see the new Jason Bourne movie. I kind of regretted it afterwards. But what happens when you're in that movie or Rocky or any movie, you walk out. I mean, let's just say the Olympics. You're watching the Olympics now. You, You watch it and you get you get into these stories and you walk out thinking that you can be Jason Bourne, that you can be him or that you can be Rocky or that you can be an Olympian, 
right? You tell these stories. I can do that. I want to overcome. I mean, when you're watching the stories, you, if you pay attention, you realize your muscles have tensed up and your heart is racing and your palms are sweating. And you think to yourself, why is this happening to me? But it's the way we're designed. It's the way stories work. They draw us in and we participate in them. And all of us like a good story, don't we? I mean, we do. We like a good story. But what I want to point us to is not just how stories draw us in and call us to participate, but also the fact that stories are everywhere, right? It's not just on film and it's not just in books, but it's in commercials and it's in the assumptions that we make when we think about what is worthy to give our life to or what is a good thing to spend our money on or what purpose in life we will have. It's all based on some type of story. It's all based on a story that we've bought into, a story that we say that we're living in. So stories aren't only outside of us, they're also inside of us. So social psychologists talk about the fact that our understanding of who we are and how we conceive of all these disparate elements in our past, how all these events come together to where we are and the direction that we imagine our life going into, they call this a life story, right? Brilliant, huh? But they call this a life story because in a life story, we find coherence. And when we find coherence, we find some sense of identity, some home, some sense of belonging in this life story. And so when we put together these elements, we understand that stories provide the deepest framework in which human life is understood, right? If I wanna know you, what do I need to know? I need to get to know your story. And it happens like that. If I were to ask any one of you why you're in Orlando, I said, tell me why you're in Orlando. There would be a story. You would tell me a story. And as we would continue to talk about it, somehow the fact that you're here would be a part of your life story, wouldn't it? So you may even say, well, I was born here. Well, then I could say, well, why didn't you leave? Or if you left, why did you come back? Or if you're here, why do you stay? And it would be wrapped up in this understanding of who you are and what your life is about. You would tell me a story. Stories are inside of us. They're the way we understand our life. And the way we understand life depends on what we think the human story is. Think about it. As humans, we interpret and make sense of our world through narrative, through story. So that's how they work. That's how they work in us. So if that's how they work, then we do need to ask the question, what story are we in? Okay, because that's important. Welcome to the story. What story am I talking about? I'm talking about the story. And you'll notice I'm assuming that we don't have a choice that we all live in a story, that we can't opt out of storied humanity, right? I've said this, our vision of what is worthy of our time, our effort, our attention, our life is directed by the story we would say we're living in, what we believe our purpose is, what we believe will make us happy, what will bring us the good life, what makes our lives matter, what gives us meaningful relationships. All of that is based on how we would tell the story. Stories are the only way we can make sense of things and that's okay because that's how God has made us. God gave us stories and he gave us our story. Now the Bible is also a story. It's a living story. Some theologians call the Bible a theodrama. And by that, theo meaning God, drama from the Greek word to do. 
So the Bible tells the only true story about what God is doing in the world, right? That's a theodrama. And we then must find our stories in this meta theodrama. Think about it. There's a stage, which is creation. There's a script, which is scripture. There's an author and director, the triune God. There are secondary actors. Now we would say us or the church. There's a historical plot, which we'll talk about in a second. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And we would say by following the contours of this story or redemptive history, we can understand our identity and our role in the world as we're caught up in this cosmic story, this theodrama. So the Bible story is the true account of the world and our place in it. Simply put, that is the story we're in. We are in the true account of the world and our place in it. Now, the Bible follows those four elements of a story that I said before, right? So there is an introduction. Then there is a dramatic problem when sin enters the world and there's a resolution to the problem in Jesus. And then there's the summing up of all things. Uh, we can refer to these four elements, as I already mentioned, the Bible storyline, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Herman Bovink, my, one of my favorite theologians, says it this way. This is how he summarizes the story. The creation of the Father is devastated by sin. It's restored in the death of the Son of God and recreated by the Holy Spirit into the kingdom of God. You hear all four parts? God is doing something in the world. And we are a part of the story, that story. A story is comprehensive. There's no part of your life that doesn't fit into this story. No part. Parenting, work, thoughts, dreams, passions, stewardship, fears, doubts, questions, aging, dying, weakness, identity, confusion, hope, dreams. It all fits in this comprehensive cosmic story that God is telling. And I said it's four chapters, but oftentimes we've been told and we live in a two-chapter story. And that's one of the reasons I wanted us to go through this series. So here are the four chapters I mentioned, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, but you see the other two are grayed out. And I think that a lot of us, this is the story that we live in. It's about, I'm a sinner and Jesus saves me and souls and that's it. And that's true. I mean, you take that out, it's not a beautiful story anymore. I mean, these parts are integral to the story. You don't get around it. But oftentimes I have found as I talk to you, as I reflect on my own life, we begin functionally or explicitly to tell a two-chapter story where we lop off creation and we lop off the restoration of all things. And you see, what that does to us is it minimizes the human experience. It minimizes all that God would call us to do. It minimizes our image-bearing capacity, right? It doesn't tell a true story. You see, not all stories are true, are they? Some stories lie. And when stories lie, they have a negative impact on people. Walter 
Walker Percy has this great quote. He says, um, bad books always lie and they lie most, most of all about the human condition. You see, if we only live in a story that is fall and redemption, it's not a comprehensive story. We have no idea what we fell from. We have no idea what we were created for. And we lose the tragedy. And then we don't know how to place our longings, our desires, the beauty of every part of our life. And then if you cut off the last chapter, we don't have a true hope, an embodied hope to live in. And things like the resurrection make no sense to us. Why would I need a body? Why would I need that? Aren't I just gonna go to heaven and exist somewhere? But that's not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is that God created the earth and we had physical image bearers on the earth, part of creation, to go out and to image him in the world and to take his glory all over the earth and then send it into the world. And now God is on this rescue mission to redeem us back to our original purpose of imaging him in the world. You see, this is a story that can handle all of our life. This is a comprehensive story. And you see, all other false stories in the world are comprehensive. So if we only tell a two-chapter story, we, we have no comprehensive story to combat false stories with. We're not equipped. But in fact, the true story is a comprehensive story. It is a four-chapter story. Other words you can use here for all chapters would be ought, is, can, and will. Think about this. You, think about your life. We know things ought to be some way, a certain way. We know they ought to be a certain way. They were made to be a certain way. We have a longing. We know that sin isn't right. We know that things are amiss. They ought to be a certain way. And then we know, but they are amiss. That's how things are. But we don't have to be stuck there because the Bible then tells us, but there is a can, there's redemption. Things can change. You can be set free. You can be redeemed in Jesus. All things can be restored. And then the last chapter is will. The prophet Habakkuk is very clear. The glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. That will happen. And so we can live into, we have this comprehensive story. And so what I wanna do now is I wanna ask you this question, this question. What story do you live in? And more than that, this is what I want you to do. So if you have a pen, you can write this down or you can think about it. For the next seven days, I want you to do this, okay? I want you in the morning to ask and answer the question, what story am I living in today? Who am I? Why am I about to do what I'm about to do? And then at the end of the day, I want you to ask yourself, how did I do? Where did I fail? Where do I need to repent? Where is God calling me to experience more life in this story that he's called me into? So I've done this, okay? So I've done this and I know that it's helpful, which is why I'm asking you to do it, okay? And this is what I've found. So I'm gonna give you a heads up. When I have had to repent, what I have had to repent the most of at the end of the day is this. I have found um, so many ways to make myself the star of my story. I've realized 
out of fear or out of doubt or out of confusion, I've put myself at the center of my story. And I've lived for myself. I've lived for my own righteousness or I've lived for my own kingdom or what people think of me. And I haven't lived to magnify the true actor, I mean the true star of the story. My life has become about me. And you see, when we tell those four chapters in the false story, we all know that something's not right. So for you, what is redemption gonna be? Is it gonna be more power? Right? If I can just get more power, everything will be okay. Things aren't how they are, but they'll be better and things will be right in the world and I'll have the good life when I have more power or more control or more resources or more respect or more esteem. If people just appreciated me for who I was, then everything would be right. Everything would be good. A few years back, there was this documentary called Religious. Right? Did you see this? I, I couldn't watch the whole thing, so I kept fast forwarding through it. It was so painful. At the end of it, though, uh, the, the person who was doing it, Bill Maher, I think was who it was. I just, is that who it was? Just thank you. It slipped my mind. It's on Netflix, probably. Uh, at the end, after he de- debunks religion, but really Christianity mainly, he then goes into like a 10 minute monologue. And this is what it was it was the gospel according to Bill Maher. He had to tell his own story. Nobody gets out of answering these questions. Nobody gets out of telling a comprehensive story of what things are. The difference is, is what do you think our purpose is? What do you think happened? And what do you think the answer is? That's a good question. Those are good questions to ask ourselves every day. What do I think will truly make me happy? What do I think will define me and give me purpose? What story will I find myself in? Eugene Peterson uh, has a great quote. He says, the biblical story invites us as participants into something larger than our sin-defined needs. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever thought about it? If you could make a story that you couldn't even make a good one for your own life because of the sin in your own life. I mean, that just struck me. I thought, I'm so arrogant, thinking I know how I could orchestrate my life, that I could know what a good life would be on my own as though I wasn't being influenced by everything around me, right? I mean, you know, the true legislators, legislators in the world used to be poets and now they're filmmakers, right? That's who, that's who the real legislators are in our own hearts and minds and in the law of the land. Stories are that powerful. So what's beautiful about the biblical story is that it invites us to participate into something larger than anything our sin-defined needs could imagine and in something truer than our culture stunted ambitions. All of us are stunted and muted by the social imaginaries around us. What we think a good life is is so narrow. It's so small compared to what God would have for us in the Bible. So I don't have time to go into this, but I would ask you this question uh, in the next seven days. Ask yourself those questions. What story am I in? How did I do today? But also what story am I telling my kids, right? I can tell them certain words, and I can implicitly tell them different stories. The way I talk to them, the way I act around them, how I direct their dreams and desires or fail to. It all is telling them a story. So how do stories work? We talked about that. We talked about what story we're in. We're in a comprehensive four-chapter story. Now, as quickly as we can, 
uh, where does the biblical story begin, right? It doesn't start with the fall. It starts with creation. So the way I wanna sum this up quickly in our passage today is I just wanna look at it from two quick questions. Uh, first, what do we learn about God in creation in this first chapter? What do we learn about God, right? So if we were to read the whole chapter, uh, chapter one and even chapter two in Genesis, we'd learn that God is king over all things. And because of that, he has the right to rule over all things. So we see his authority and it has power. And we see that in lots of ways, not least that he names everything, right? He says, that's the sun, that's the moon, that's night, that's day, this is how it works. And if we think about a story, Genesis 1 is a fitting introduction or a prologue because it explains the stage and it also explains how everything relates to one another, doesn't it? How God relates to creation, how creation relates to God. And then on the sixth day, which we'll see in a moment, how humans relate to the creator God. So God is king over all things, so he has the right to rule. The other thing we see is creation is God's kingdom. He reigns over all of creation. There's not a, any part of creation that he doesn't reign over. Okay, and when we tell a two-chapter story, that can be lost sometimes, right? And sometimes it's lost most of all in what the fourth chapter would have. If God's gonna bring everything together in consummation or restoration, what is included in that? Well, if we don't start with creation, we might narrow God's redemptive focus. We might shrink it. But actually, what does the hymn say? That God's mercy goes as far as the curse is found. And that is everywhere, to the cellular level, to the, to the smallest level we can imagine. So it's all God is reigning over all. And then the, the last thing I wanna say for today is God takes care of his creation and it's good. Right? The Bible is filled with ways that God continues to care for his creation. I mean, all over the place. It's just Matthew 5 is what pops my mind right now. All right? So we see that God, even now, is so merciful, so kind to provide that he has the sun to rise even on the unjust, both the just and the unjust. John Calvin says this, if God should but withdraw his hand a little, all things would immediately perish and dissolve into nothing. I mean, think about that. The story that we hear is that we understand creation, right? We know physics, we know chemistry, we know biology, we know quantum mechanics. We know how things work. And if we don't, someday we will. And they're just doing their thing and everything's fine. But actually the story that we live in is that there is a wise God who is sovereign over anything that we would ever observe. And Calvin's right. If God were to withdraw his hand a little, all things would immediately perish and dissolve into nothing. So God takes care of his creation because it's good and because he's committed to it. Now, how, what do we learn about humanity? And this is going to be important because remember Percy's quote, bad books lie, or we say bad stories lie, and they lie most about the human condition. First, we learn humanity relates to God. It doesn't have to be that way. I mean, it does, because that's the true story. But not all stories that try to tell a comprehensive story, even that try to account for God, would say this, that humanity is made to have companionship with the triune God. When you think about the original audience, which would have been slaves just brought out of Egypt, Moses writing this book to them, they just spent generations 
saying that, well, we don't image God. Pharaoh images God, but we don't. I mean, we're, we're just slaves and servants, right? He, he's the one that carries forth God's purposes on the earth. But Moses says, no, 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 no. All human beings are created in the image of God. Genesis 3.8 says that human beings also were created for companionship with the triune God. That's when God walked in the garden with the man and the woman. So this implies that God created Adam and Eve for the purpose of personal companionship. So that desire that you have in your life to know God, it was put in you. I read a C.S. Lewis quote this week where he said that, I'm summarizing it, that when he was an atheist, he was angry at God for not existing. You see, there's this deep part of image bearers that longs for companionship with their creator. And we learn that that's exactly what we were made for. We also see that we were, learned to, we were made to relate to other humans, right? Humans are not created only to relate with God, but also to one another. God says it is not good for man to be alone. So we image and reflect God in relationship to other humans. It does us no good to try to be more spiritual than God, right? I don't need anybody else. Just me and Jesus. Mm-mm. Nope. That's not what the Bible says. It's not. It never was that way, even before the fall. It's not good for man to be alone. It's part of the warp and woof, the very fabric of God's character and who he is and how he created, that he would give us community, that he would invite us in to commune with the Trinity. But we're made as social creatures and that's part of the way we image him in the world. We're made for beautiful interdependency. Right? Some of us take pride in our ability to do things on our own and to make it on our own and accomplish things on our own. I love the stories of the Olympics. By the way, can you imagine how boring the Olympics would be if you just watched people swim and you didn't know who anybody was and you didn't know their stories, right? But in every story, what is it? It really at its heart is, a, is the self-made man or woman, right? That's really the story. And we resonate with that. And there are good things. I love the Olympics as much as you. Don't freak out on me. Okay, enjoy it. It's beautiful. There's lots of things to look at. But I am so glad that ultimately the story that we are in is that we are made for beautiful interdependence, that we're given our meaning and purpose by someone else. And we don't have to go justify our existence by a minute and 50 seconds in a swimming pool. Although it's beautiful and good and God can be glorified in that. But it's not how I find my identity. It reminds me of this. I was told this example one time um, I think this is a true story. It was heard, I heard it from a reputable source. Sometimes preachers tell f- stories they don't know is true. I think this one is true, okay? Those are called parables, by the way, not lying. So basically, I'm, uh, there's a story of a church in Minnesota and it was a country church and they would have picnics. They have them every summer and they have this big thing of lemonade, very big, and it has a spigot at the bottom. And one of the ways they all pitch in is everyone brings their pitcher of lemonade and dumps it in. Well, after a while, that's a lot of sugar, right? So people started bringing pitchers of water and everyone knew some people were doing it. No one organized it. And they would pour pitchers of water in to sort of dilute the lemonade. So everyone's supposed to bring their pitcher of lemonade, right? Your creation. And people were bringing water. Well, as the story goes, um, the first person who went up to it opened the spigot one, sun, one Sunday after church and it came out as pure water. 
It's like a magic trick. It's supposed to be lemonade and it's water. What happened? Well, what happened is no one brought lemonade. Everyone brought water. Everyone thought, well, it's faster, it's easier. So-and-so's lemonade's better than my lemonade anyway. I'm just gonna bring water, right? And it was just water. And so the person who told me the story said, Damien, I need you to bring your lemonade. What are they saying? They're saying, I need you to image God how he's made you to do that in this community right now. I don't need you to bring your water. I need you to bring your lemonade. I need you to bring who you are. And the fact that we are created in such a way where all of us image God in relationship together, we need each other. And we need each other to bring all of who we are, to bring our gifts, to bring our passions. And this is why it is so, this is why it is so ugly that there would be marginalized peoples that there would be injustice, that there would be people in this church who don't feel and truly aren't represented because they're a part of a group that is the minority in this church. And that is a part of a fallen world, but it's not supposed to be that way. And that is why it's the heart of, one of the reasons why it's the heart of God to pursue marginalized peoples, to go after them. Why? So that they can bring their lemonade, so that they can be freed up and equipped to be who they are, to be loved, to give love, to receive love. And that's part of what we see in creation. So we see our relationship to God. We see our relationship to one another. And in conclusion, we see our relationship with creation. Uh, Here's a quote by uh, a commentator. We see that the world without the man is incomplete, right? Day six Everything's not finished until man comes. But we can turn the proposition around and say man without the world is incomprehensible. And the point is this. Because God has placed us here in this world and he's called us in service both to himself but also to creation. And this means that we have to be comfortable with our creaturely status, with our physicality, with our undeniable link with everything that is creaturely with the fact that this world is our home. We sang it at the beginning. It's our father's world. He's put us in it. This world is our home. Now, of course, it needs to be redeemed. And it will. And it'll be made new. But we see the dwelling place of God is with man. God comes back. Revelation 21. And all things are restored. So we see in creation that God took the earth from unformed and empty and he formed it and he filled it, but not completely. He then on day six made image bearers and said, go out and keep filling it and keep uh, taking dominion over all things. So let's put it back in the story language. Listen to this. The stage on day six, the stage with all of its rich variety of props has been set by the stage director. All right. The actors are introduced and as the curtain rises, the stage director moves backstage and the actors are given their opening cue. The drama of human history is about to begin and the first and foundational word of God to his children is the command to fill and subdue. It's a quote from one commentator. So creation is not a static thing. It's unfolding. There's a developing to it. And you and I are called to bring that about, to continually bring to fruition the possibilities of development in creation. And for humans, because we're creaturely, it's mainly gonna be in culture and society. Some of the possibilities that we love, given the reality 
of the created order is that we can have schools and industry and academia and printing and rocketry and the internet and art and marketing and construction and music. And we keep learning and discovering. Why? Because we were given that task. That's what we were called to do. And these things aren't possible due to some freak evolutionary process. That's not the story we live in. But because of God in creation and his wisdom, he's given us profound meaningfulness in the world to carry these things out. Whether we're parenting, changing diapers, creating a masterpiece, closing a business deal, discovering something new in research, all of these things are part of what it means to be human. We've been tasked with these things. And because that's true, every day should be filled with wonder and mission and joy and discovery and expectancy. When is the last time you woke up and actually expected God to use you that day? I mean, really in your mind. You woke up and you said, I know what story I'm in. God's gonna use me and I don't know how, but I'm gonna be faithful to my calling today. When's the last time that happened? It doesn't matter where you are. God wants to use you. Now I'm gonna close with this. I've been talking a lot about the ought, right? This is how things ought to be. But because I wanna tell true stories, I have to at least acknowledge before next week that this isn't always how things are. Things are difficult. Things are challenging. Things are in rebellion. And that's exactly what the fall is. Chapter two is all about rebellion. There are consequences to our rebellion against God. We know things are not how they ought to be. So the question is, what will serve as the answer to redeem them? And that's really what the rest of the series is about, is it's us unpacking the dynamics of what sin does to us and in us and around us and what Jesus is doing to us and in us and around us and how we find our place And we understand that as we find our place, we realize we are not the star of this story. But our life finds meaning as it's brought up into the larger story. And I'll close with this. I'm reminded of Jesus as he retells the story in Luke 24 after the resurrection. He helps these confused, broken, sad, distraught disciples as they're walking along the way Help them understand you're looking at the wrong thing. See, I am the point of everything Moses said. I am at the center of everything God is doing in the world. And when we find our story wrapped up in Jesus, that's how we become a part of this story of redemption that God is doing in the world. You see, our way into this story, our way into this rescue mission is through Jesus. And so I wanna leave you with this. As you go out asking yourself those questions, what story am I in? How did I do? Jesus is at the center of both of those questions. Let's pray. Father, it's a lot. Um, I gave myself a big task I just pray that you would comfort your people in the fact that 
you care for every part of their life, that although we sometimes in despair think our life is not filled with meaning or is not as good or as important as we once thought it would be, and some of us find ourselves getting older and dreams that we had seemingly slipping away, and yet we know that you're there for us to remind us that our story is defined and wrapped up in your story, what you're doing. And we find our identity there, our purpose, our comfort, and our peace. So I pray now as we reflect and as we sing in response that you would come and comfort us. In Jesus' name, amen.